Hello, 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 my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And guess what? This, once again, is Black History Month. This is our third Black History Month that I have spent on this mic talking to you. And I am so thankful and proud that I have been able to accomplish this. Three years, three years you have been listening to me. And they have been a good three years. I have learned a lot and I hope you have learned a lot also. And you know what? We are gonna keep our pedal to the metal. We're not gonna lighten up because at my age, I got a long way to go in a short time to get there. I would love to have 1,000 stories about us and about our people and about the things that we have accomplished and the atrocities that we have had to face in our library. So if you stay with me, I'm going to keep going. Oh, I know there'll come some times when you'll wonder, wow, it's been a week and I haven't heard from him. And that is because at certain times, life has a way of throwing rocks in your path. But water does not pass through a rock by sheer force. It passes through a rock by persistence. So we're going to keep at it. And right about now, we're going to dive into the darkness and give you some real black history. On April 28, 2022, the Ontario Heritage Trust unveiled an updated provisional plaque in Toronto to commemorate the Wilberforce settlement. Updating this plaque is part of the ongoing work of the Trust to tell Ontario's story in an honest, authentic, and inclusive way. The bilingual plaque reads as follows. In 1829, a group of free blacks from Cincinnati, Ohio, set out for Upper Canada with a bold vision to establish an organized colony where they could enjoy freedom, self-determination, and equality. They were joined by African Americans from New York, Massachusetts, Maryland, and other places. Settlers purchased 800 acres of land from the Canada Company, aided by a group of Ohio Quakers, and named it after British abolitionist William Wilberforce. In 1832, there were 32 families, a sawmill, two schools, Baptist and Methodist congregations, a temperance society, a blacksmith, shoemaker, and tailor. Because the number of settlers was much smaller than originally planned, and due to the unwillingness of Canada Company agents to sell them more land, the colony did not expand. Many of its leaders left by the 1840s. A core group remained, however, and their descendants continued to live in the area 
into the 21st century through land ownership, hard work, education, and legal equalities. These freedom pioneers struck a blow at American oppression and carved a path for others to follow. The settlers in Wilberforce were in general industrious and thrifty farmers. They cleared their land, sowed grain, planted orchards, raised cattle, and in short, showed to the world that they were in no way inferior to the white population when given an equal chance with them. Austin Stewart, 22 years a slave and 40 years a free man. You see, my friends, the idea to establish Wilberforce began in 1829 among a group of free African-Americans from Cincinnati, Ohio. This group was seeking freedom from the black codes that were reinvigorated there after a long lapse. An 1804 law, an act to regulate black and mulatto persons, required that blacks obtain a certificate of freedom from a federal court to live and work in Ohio. Three years later, they were required to post a $500 bond signed by two white men guaranteeing their good behavior and support. Now, wasn't that a hell of a thing? A black person could not testify in court against a white person nor serve on juries. These laws were not generally enforced until 1829, when the rapid increase of free and enslaved blacks fleeing into Ohio alarmed the white citizens. City officials ordered African Americans to comply with these oppressive codes or leave within 30 days. Many decided to leave. A colonization society headed by James Charles Brown was hurriedly pulled together to organize an exit from the state and forge a planned settlement in Upper Canada. This group sent a two-man delegation of Israel Lewis and Thomas Cressap to Upper Canada in 1829 to meet with Lieutenant Governor Sir John Coburn. Colburn welcomed them with open arms, reportedly saying, Tell the Republicans on your side of the line that we royalists do not know men by their color. Should you come to us, you will be entitled to all the privileges of the rest of His Majesty's subjects. By August, however, many were still in preparation, and few had actually left Cincinnati. But a mob of about two to three hundred skilled and unskilled white laborers stormed through black neighborhoods, beat the residents, and burned down their homes. This rampage lasted for three days. Meanwhile, with a mass exodus looming, city officials were preparing to repeal the black laws. As a result, according to Brown, of roughly 2,700 black Cincinnatians, only 460 ultimately left the city, and most of those settled in different parts of Upper Canada, purchased land, or settled in various towns in the province. Only five or six families from Cincinnati settled on a tract of land in Middlesex County. 
This group was augmented by 15 families from Massachusetts, New York, Baltimore, Maryland, and other places. Settlers purchased 1,020 acres at $1.50 per acre, and land was divided into 25 and 50 acre plots. Successful Rochester, New York grocer and community leader Austin Stewart arrived in Wilberforce in May of 1831 and found 14 or 15 families, about 50 people settled there. According to Stewart, Israel Lewis, one of the agents represented the colony, had been contracted to enter into an agreement to purchase 4,000 acres of land in Bidblop Township for $6,000, but did not follow through with the contractual agreement with the Canada Company, and as a result, the Canada Company refused to sell any more land to black settlers. Thwarting the desire of Stewart to purchase a lot of land for himself. In the meantime, a group of Quakers from Oberlin, Ohio, stepped in and purchased 800 acres of land. The colonists set about clearing the land and planting crops. And on November the 5th, 1831, the Liberator newspaper reported impressive progress thus far on the part of the Wilberforce settlers, noting that a prosperous day school of 20 to 30 children was run by Miss Paul, the daughter of Reverend Benjamin Paul. And on Sundays, two sermons were preached, one by Reverend Paul and the other by Reverend Enos Adams. Lastly, a Sabbath school was conducted by Austin Stewart when abolitionist and philanthropist Benjamin Lundy visited Wilberforce in January 1832. He reported that there were 32 families totaling approximately 160 individuals residing in the settlement. He noted that they had purchased nearly 2,000 acres of land, of which 200 acres had been cleared, and of this, about 60 acres sown with wheat. Several lots were obtained because the settlers had cleared over seven miles of a wide road through the settlement and were rewarded with these lots. Most had erected tolerable, comfortable log homes, some having well-shingled roofs, and they possessed about 100 heads of cattle and pigs and a few horses. Now, in Lundy's account, there was a sawmill and two good schools, one taught by Thomas Paul, the son of Reverend Benjamin Paul. Its quality was such that some of the white settlers sent their children to this school. There was also a summer school for girls taught by Reverend Paul's daughter. The settlement supported Methodist and Baptist congregations, a Sunday school in the warm season taught by Austin Stewart, a temperance society, and a blacksmith, shoemaker, and tailor. In the absence of a lot of land for farming, Stewart himself opened a popular tavern in his home for the accommodation of travelers, and he also began a delivery service for merchants in the neighboring villages. Scottish traveler Patrick Sharif 
passed by the settlement in 1833 and noticed the interesting construction of the residence log houses with the chimney stack built on the outside of the house. He noted that the chief crop was Indian corn, well cultivated, and that the houses, barns, fences, and general appearances of this settlement in most respects equal and in some superior to the settlements of whites in the Huron tract of the same standing of three years. Sharif was candid in admitting that before leaving Britain, he had heard that Wilberforce was a failure and that this was used as an argument against the emancipation of enslaved Africans. Interestingly, this theme of Wilberforce being a failed settlement had been repeated by modern-day scholars, well-respected historians such as William and Jane Peace, Jason Silverman, Robin Winks, Daniel Hill, and Donald Simpson have all declared Wilberforce colony a failed experiment in Canadian wilderness. All cite the initial problem of contracting to buy thousands more acres than were ultimately needed, and brought about the fact that almost none of the monies collected for churches and schools by the colony's agents, Israel Lewis and Nathan Paul, were ever received by the settlement. Silverman's account, however, is particularly a lie. Unfamiliarity with farming methods surely contributed to their struggle. Indeed, the Cincinnati blacks had gone from unemployment in Ohio to destitution in Upper Canada. Only a few of their leaders were educated, and they simply did not teach their constituents the requisite skills for their new way of life. Silverman takes the word of the Canada Company agent, who we will note had decided not to sell any more land to black people, and who wrote in 1835, The greater number of blacks were people of bad character, idle and dissolute. They depended on their agents to raise money from outside sources rather than learning to use the resources at hand. Despite Austin Stewart's account that the money raised by the agents was to go toward the establishment of schools and churches, not to the colonists themselves for their own purposes. And after weighing all the evidence, Fred Landon concluded that the colony failed not because of the lack of education skill, but because the laws causing the black population to leave in the first place was rescinded and the Canada Company refused to sell any more land to the African community, thus preventing its expansion. These were not ignorant fugitive slaves embarking on a journey of which they had absolutely no understanding. They were free blacks and bold colonists who acted with agency and vision. Historian Nikki Taylor argues that those who reduced Wilberforce's existence to a label of failure would do well to revisit the goals of the original settlers, those from Cincinnati, and that Wilberforce needs to be placed within a large history of black immigration.
responding to the crisis in Cincinnati and other black communities in the North, a national black consciousness of the condition and future of the race was awakened. The first of several meetings known as the Black Convention Movement was organized in September 1830 in Philadelphia at which delegates pledged to raise money and encourage settlement in Canada. Canada was preferred because it was believed that African Americans would be equal under the law and entitled to all the rights and privileges of other citizens. The climate, soil, language, and culture were similar to that in the United States. Land could be had at a dollar fifty cent an acre, and there would be a ready market for their produce. As Taylor insists, Wilberforce was an impressive vision of freedom constructed in Cincinnati, mobilized and made transnational. When American communities favored immigration, and many did not, They preferred going to a country where free blacks could hold full political control over their destiny. My friends, the story of Wilberforce is an interesting one indeed. I'm sorry we do not have time enough to go into it more and more, but I've opened the door for you. All you got to do is look it up and find out everything that they went through. It's a part of our history that has been hidden from us. And like the other misplaced stories, Black History Moments with Bo will bring it to the light. We'll tell you about it and hope you respond by learning the full story yourself. And my friends, that music tells me that it's time for me to get out of here. But before I go, you know I have a message for you. And that message is this. I choose to live by choice, not chance. To be motivated, not manipulated. To be useful, not used. To make changes, not excuses. To excel, not compete. I choose self-esteem, not self-pity. I choose to listen to my own inner voice, not to the random opinions of others. I hope you have a great day, my friends. And until next time, it has been my honor. Peace to my ancestors and my elders. I walk in your strength, legacy, and power today and every day.